Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website www.exchangechurch.org.au. Couple of talks where Jesus speaks into sort of real time issues that we deal with in this world that we live in uh, today. Real time things that we sort of struggle with or actually are happening in our own heart and mind as well. And uh, so, do this for the next two weeks. And today, we're going to um, look at uh, what it is to be great or what is greatness all about. How does the Bible talk about greatness? Now, we normally don't have lots of videos at church, but I have got another video now. You'll have to listen really carefully for this one. It's an old video. Just hear the words of this very, very humble person as he um, talks about himself. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Very humble person. <laughs> In case you didn't work out who that is, that is Cassius Clay, better known as Muhammad Ali, very much known for I am the greatest. I float like a butterfly and I sting like a... Yeah, you do know him as well. Okay. Yeah, he hasn't escaped our attention. Well... That's not what Jesus is going to talk about today in being the greatest. That just highlights, though, that what the world can think is the greatest and how it actually can puff us up in pride when we think we are the greatest. So if you've got your Bibles, please go with me today to Matthew chapter 18. We're just going to read the first four verses there. So Matthew chapter 18, the first four verses, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can come today with this uh, amazing privilege to open up your word and to allow that to speak into our hearts and lives. Lord, it is like you speaking to us right now as we read this word. We ask and pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and uh, open up our eyes and open up our ears to see the truth, the truth, Lord, that pours forth from these pages and opens our heart up. Please help us now, we pray, that you would help us to see what the greatest really is, humbly serving you and humbly serving others in your kingdom. Now, Lord, we ask for that help now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So yeah, over these next couple of weeks, we're going to take some time to explore to explore some of the things that Jesus has said. Some of the things that Jesus says are quite provocative, and they're quite upside down in comparison to the culture where we live in. Jesus wasn't afraid to speak out the truth, especially as it confronted the false status quo of the time and the culture. And and Jesus didn't do this sort of confronting them in a way because he he was looking for controversy. Certainly Jesus wasn't doing that. But Jesus spoke these words of truth because he loved people and wanted to see them set free from their brokenness and their faulty thinking in their lives to now again live for God. Jesus wants to come and set us free from the sin that destroys our souls and corrupts our hearts. That's why Jesus would speak this truth into the face of culture and humanity and would be quite affronting at times. So as we think about this today, our big idea is going to be this. Uh, True greatness in God's kingdom is to walk in humble dependence on his grace to love and serve him and others. True greatness in God's kingdom is to walk in humble dependence on his grace to love and serve him and others. I guess an important question, what does the greatest mean? What is this word greatest? It's here in the Bible that the disciples are asking for this greatest. Uh, The greatest uh, means something like this. Supreme, superior, preeminent, highest, powerful, prestige, position, and perhaps many other words that are similar to that for this idea of the greatest. And for Jesus' disciples here in Luke, as they ask this question, uh, sorry, Matthew, as they ask this question, their context is greatest in a place of position of power. They're actually jostling for position. Who's going to be the, the person in the place of power in your kingdom, Jesus? And just as we saw there with Muhammad Ali, he thought himself to be the greatest of all time in the boxing world. He saw himself as having the highest or supreme position as boxing's greatest ever athlete. Now, in his glory days, I would never argue that with him. Or perhaps over the telephone I might argue with him, but not face to face with him, because he probably would take me out with one punch. Greatest, supreme, superior position above all things, in the sense here of what we're asking about this word greatest. Now, as we think about that, I think there's a, I believe that there's a sense where we're all striving for some sort of greatness in our lives. We all feel that we've got some sort of gift or talent or skill that we want to develop and see it become sharp. You know, like if I'm a photographer, which we had Tommy going around there taking a few photos before. If I'm a photographer, I'm looking to improve my skills for getting that right shot with the right lighting and the right balance of colours. We want to make that better, do that with a better intent. If I'm a doctor, maybe I'm looking to improve my skills at diagnosing illnesses and prescribing the right treatment so I can heal people. Great thing. If I'm a farmer... I'm looking to improve my skills to grow better pasture and crops so I can grow larger stock. If I'm a builder, perhaps I'm looking to improve my skills to be more efficient and make my workmanship more presentable so it looks like I do quality workmanship. We look to actually um, improve ourselves and and become better at what we do. Now, that's not wrong at all. I think that's a good thing to improve the skills that God's given to us and try and become better at those things. It's a good thing to increase the capacity we have and to make it perhaps more effective and more efficient in how we do things. But I think there's a line we cross at some point from improving our skills, which is okay, 
to now wanting to, be, now wanting to become the greatest at what we do. We switch, as it were, from just wanting to improve our skills to now want to be known as the greatest photographer, farmer, doctor, whatever it might be. There's a switch. There's a line that we step over that crosses there. And often this switch or this crossing over the line in that sense comes from maybe being recognised for our skill or our talent for what we've done. Or we may see the fame of others and what they've done. We sort of want that fame. So we want to become like them. Or we think as well, if I could become the greatest at this gift or talent or skill, maybe I just might find what life is all about. Maybe I found what my purpose in life is and I won't live this meaningless life because I've discovered what life's all about, becoming the greatest at my skill set. You know, if I can be the greatest in my field or career of life, I'll find satisfaction and contentment. If I can become great, then I'll feel accepted. I'll feel wanted. I'll feel valued. People want me because they can see how great I am. Or I might think like this. Imagine if people saw me as the greatest. Just imagine how they would look up to me as the great one, receiving these accolades. Or people might think like this. Imagine my social media profile if I'm the greatest. Again, attracting attention. Just imagine their thoughts, their words, their actions, their comments, their likes, making me feel special about myself because I'm now the greatest. Imagine how proud I could be about myself and my achievements because of this greatness that I've attained. There's a sense where we cross the line and these things begin to roll around in our mind. And particularly here with the disciples, I think they're on the same page as that. They've got this happening in their mind, so they ask Jesus this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now this same story uh, is recorded for us in Mark chapter 9, and it says there they were arguing with each other, going up the road about who was to be the greatest in God's kingdom. You could see in their own minds at that time, they're already jostling for position to to maybe get some sort of fame or get some sort of place of prestige. If only I could be the greatest in God's kingdom, these disciples are thinking. If I could just have that position of power and prestige, if only that could be me, that would be the dream job of eternity, wouldn't it? People would look to me as the great one. How good would others feel if they saw me and came to me as the great one? The disciples have rolling around in their mind as they're striving with this position of greatness. Let me stop and ask this question here about striving and achieving greatness. Does it really fulfil us? Is all this striving and struggling to achieve greatness in our lives? Does striving and actually achieving greatness, does it really tick all the boxes of life for me or you? That I've actually found what my life is all about because I've actually become the greatest in my field or career and I've struggled and strived for that. Does it really do that? Does it tick those boxes? Here's the story of an amazing man probably one of the greatest of all time in swimming, Michael Phelps. Uh, An amazing swimming athlete, possibly the greatest of all time. Uh, He has won a record 28 Olympic medals. 23 of those medals have been gold medals. At the 2008 Beijing Olympics, he won a record eight gold medals. That's freakish. Who in the heck can do that? 
Just like every event he goes in, he wins the gold. He wins the gold. He wins the gold. That's absolutely outstanding. Uh, Phelps got his first taste of success at about 15 years old where he broke his first uh, world swimming record. And as he got out of the pool, uh, his comments to that effect were this. He just wanted now to max out his ability in life to see how far he could go. Well, he went a long way. 28 medals later at Olympic Games, 23 of those were gold. And he said at that particular time, after winning some of these medals, his life of achieving greatness at this time uh, became a life, according to his words, of eating, sleeping and swimming. That's all he did. He ate, he slept and he swam. Full-time training and preparation for swimming meets and competitions and Olympic Games and whatever all around the world. Eating, sleeping and swimming was all he did. And what did he achieve through all this? Oh, he achieved greatness. He absolutely did. He got greatness. You saw some pictures of all those gold medals hanging off his neck. He's probably known as the greatest swimmer of all time. He's famous everywhere and everybody wants a piece of him. Every sporting company wants to put their label on his body, as it were, to sell more sporting uh, apparel because he is the greatest. And probably thousands and thousands of people are looking up to Michael Phelps, if only I could just be like him. If only I could be great like Michael Phelps. If only if I was just like him, my life would be all okay then. Did he discover his purpose and satisfaction in life through greatness? Did Michael Phelps discover that there? Through the fame of popularity and attention, did Michael Phelps really find what life was all about in greatness? No, he didn't. Just weeks, just weeks after winning eight gold medals in Beijing, Phelps was photographed smoking a bong doing drugs. So within weeks of standing on the winner's podium, eight times with a gold medal dangled around his neck, and lapping up all the applause of the media and the world as they heaped it all upon him, Phelps was a broken man doing drugs, smoking weed to escape the pain and the brokenness of this life and his, this world he lived in. He was a broken man. He was depressed, suffering severe depression. See, it didn't do it for him. Having all that greatness didn't tick all the boxes. You see, God never designed us as human beings to try to become the greatest in this world and that's where we'll find our life and that's where we'll find our purpose. We were never created here to try and find life inside of ourselves and as it were having others nearly idolising us or worshipping us. When I reach this greatness, people can just come after me like that, then I'll find life. We were never, ever created for that by God. Yet though, every one of us has some degree of striving for greatness in our lives so that we can be accepted or approved of. There's something yearning within us that we're looking for acceptance and approval and we'll think we'll find it in greatness. If I could just become great. And just like Michael Phelps, every one of us then to some degree is left broken and washed up in this world as we strive for greatness, and it doesn't tick those boxes. 
It doesn't actually discover who we're meant to be and why we're here on this earth for. You see, because there's a bit of the disciples who are asking the same thing of Jesus. There's a bit of them and there's a bit of Michael Phelps in all of us. In all of us. So how does Jesus respond here to this desire from these guys, from the disciples, as they ask about the greatest in the kingdom of God? How is Jesus going to respond as they have this argument, as they were, travelling up the road? Well, thankfully, at least the disciples are pointed in the right direction. They acknowledge God as their creator and their sovereign being over them in the universe. Have a look in verse 1. It says there, in God's kingdom, kingdom of heaven. So they acknowledge that God is king over all things, king over the universe. So they're at least heading in the right direction with understanding who God is, but they're missing a big piece beyond that as well. Now what happens next is Jesus does something very remarkable here with the disciples to teach them about God's kingdom and also greatness. Jesus asks a small child, someone who's nearby this group as they're doing the discussion, he calls a small child over and he says, come and stand in the midst of us. And then Jesus says this here in verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now you might think, okay, what's so remarkable about this? What's so remarkable about Jesus uh, grabbing a child and placing this child here in the midst of these group of disciples as he's having this discussion. So what's the point, Jesus, of doing that? Well, the point is it's trying to understand where children were at that particular culture in that time. See, a child in Jewish culture had no status whatsoever. Children were on the scene, but they were always sort of tucked away in the background of life. It's a bit like that old saying, you know, children should be seen but not heard. Children were just sort of just pushed to the side because they had no real prominence, no real position, they had no real rights and they had no real power whatsoever as children. Now, don't get me wrong, think, were they abused then and sort of you know, unloved and abandoned? No, not at all. They were still loved. But in Jewish culture, they had no position or rights or power whatsoever. They had no prominence in culture at all. So what's Jesus saying then when he places this child in the midst of these disciples to teach them here about the kingdom of heaven. Firstly, Jesus is saying this. To get into God's kingdom, to get into the kingdom of heaven, you must become as nothing in your own eyes and your own opinion. Nothing. You become like this child. No position, no power, no prominence. Because you don't gain God's attention by the number of likes on your social media profile. You don't gain God's attention by 28 gold medals hanging off your neck. You don't gain God's attention by the level of success that you may or may not have achieved in this world. That's not how you get God's attention. Jesus is saying, just like he says to these ones, you must turn. He says there to them in verse 3, unless you turn... He's saying this, you must turn from looking at yourself 
and try to find life within. Turn from that. You must turn from trying to impress God somehow to earn his approval by what you've done or completed. And you must turn also from the despair of how hopeless it is in trying to be the greatest and continually failing. Jesus is saying, turn from all that and simply become as nothing, just like a child. Turn from that, he says, and become nothing. And you see, nothing means this. Nothing means, Jesus, I've got nothing to offer you except my failures and my flaws and my faults. Because there's no mask with Jesus. We're all good at putting the mask up, but there's no mask with Jesus. Jesus, I've got nothing to offer you except that. I've got nothing to offer you, Jesus, except for my sinful brokenness and my hopeless despair. Become as nothing like a child means being honest. Taking the mask off. Being honest. That is owning up to the truth. The truth is that I've got nothing at all to offer you, Jesus. Nothing that can earn your approval or somehow make you happy about me that might win your favour to have you uh, call me into your kingdom. I've got nothing to offer you, Jesus, except my broken self. It's being absolutely honest about who we are. That's the first base of getting into God's kingdom, is actually owning up to that, I've got nothing, and I'm as nothing, and I deserve nothing but um, your judgment, Lord, because of the way I've lived. But then Jesus goes on here to explain to the disciples and us what true greatness does look like in his kingdom. In verse 4 he says this, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's a bit of an upside down picture of how our culture might perceive greatness. It's about climbing to the top. But Jesus says, no, unless someone humbles himself like this child, in the, in the, uh, uh, is, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's going the other way. And the key word here with Jesus is this. Humility. Humility. It's not about the pride of position that I might have or the power of the position I might have that so often comes out of being the greatest because pride does seem to flow out of being the greatest, as Muhammad Ali was telling us before. It's not about making a great name for myself here. Not that at all. Because the children in Jesus' day knew they were nothing. They knew their position. They had nothing. And they humbly took their place, dependent on everybody else to teach them, to train them and care for them and look after them. They were dependent on others and that's exactly how they saw themselves. So greatness in Jesus' kingdom is about bringing ourselves low like a child and then lifting others up around about us, depending on others. True greatness in Jesus' kingdom is about going down in humility as it were And not about looking to rise up in the eyes of this world to climb my way up the ladder of greatness. You see, because it's important to see that humility, humility is a doorway to discovering God and his amazing grace in our lives. That's the door that we open to begin to step into God's kingdom. Our pride and our greatness are blinding to us. They blind us from seeing that we are utterly powerless apart from God. That's what pride and greatness does to us. Greatness is is fueled by pride and pride is fueled by greatness. The two of them work together to keep pushing each one up, pride and greatness. 
as our greatness rises, so does pride. The greater I become, it's amazing how the proudness just rises with me at the same time. And as pride rises, I perceive myself to be greater than what I really am. The two just keep feeding off each other, goes up and up and up. And it blinds us from how utterly helpless we are without God. But humility, humility before Jesus opens a door to give me a true and right perspective about who I am and who God is. And we see this about humility as Jesus talks to us from Acts 17, 28. He says this, In him we live and move and have our being. In him we, lo- we, move, we live and move and have our being. This is Paul talking to uh, the people at um, Athens, and it's the Holy Spirit that's inspired him to write what God's told him to write here. And he says there, In Jesus I live. Other words, without Jesus, I don't breathe. My lungs will not inflate. My next breath is utterly dependent on him and not on me. Whether I finish this talk this afternoon is dependent on him and not on me. Without Jesus, my heart doesn't beat. My blood will not flow around my body. Every blood cell that carries life to all these uh, parts of my body is completely dependent on him and not on me. In him I live. I don't live in myself. I live in him. In Jesus I move. In other words, without Jesus I can't move my arms. My legs will remain limp without Jesus actually ordaining them to move. Sure, he gives me a body to do that, but it's in Jesus that gives me the power to move these legs. Every movement of my fingers is totally dependent on him, not on me. Without Jesus, I can't move a muscle. Now, we don't get that, do we? We just take these bodies for granted. We just take life for granted. But it's exactly what it says here. I don't move without Jesus. I can't move a muscle. I can't move my tendons or my ligaments. They are paralysed unless Christ ordains life into me to move them. That's humbling as I understand that. He's the one who gives me life and he's the one who gives me breath. In Jesus I have my being. Uh, Jesus is the life source that brings me life. Jesus is the life source that actually gives me life that enables me to stand here and to speak and to move my arms around and to think and to share with you today. Jesus actually is the one who is working in me for that. In other words, if Jesus withdraws that life force from me or withdraws his power from my being, you know what will happen? I'll just collapse like a hot air balloon crumpled up on the ground because it's in Jesus that I have my being. What's that? It's fantastic, but it's also humbling. It humbles me. I can't do anything without Jesus. Gospel humility tells me this about Jesus as well. Have a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It says this, as Paul's sharing with the Corinthians this time, he says this, For who sees anything different in you? Catch these next words here. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, Paul says, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now that, Paul's writing to the Corinthians here, and that middle question is like a rhetorical question. He's expecting an answer in our minds. 
He's saying this, what gift, because the Corinthians were boasting about all these gifts and all these talents they had in the Corinthian church and all these wonderful, powerful things they're doing here within the church, and the whole church is just a total mess at the same time. Paul's writing to me and says this, what gift, what talent, what skill, what strength, what ability do you have that you didn't receive? In other words, they're all given to you. The answer is, for that rhetorical question, none. There's no gifts that I haven't received. They've all been given to me. Every skill and gift and ability I have, it's been given to me. I don't have it in myself. It's given to me. In other words, everything I have, even Michael Phelps with the ability to swim, comes from God. Gives him the ability to move those arms, move those legs and turn his head to the side to take the breath at the right time and to think about the whole thing and to go through the train. God does all that. He gives him the ability to do that. When I think about that, that's humbling. Very humbling. When we think about people around this world, particularly that guy at the start of the video, I don't think he was giving thanks to God for his abilities to be a boxer at that time. But without God, he can do nothing. That's humbling as we think about that. Any perceived greatness or skill that I might have, it's been given to me by God. You see, humility is the doorway to finding true greatness. And just like a child is completely dependent on their parents for everything, so are we dependent on God for everything in life. Even my next breath must come from God. So here's what true greatness is. It's an attitude of humility and dependence on God for everything. It's an attitude, it's a mindset, no, I can do nothing without God. It's humbly knowing that I'm utterly dependent on God for absolutely everything. There's not one thing I can do apart from God. True greatness is recognising that God graciously gives me everything that I have today. Even the ability to read through this passage and think about it through the week and write down thoughts, God's working in me and giving me the ability to do that. True greatness is this as well. It's a life of serving God and others ahead of myself. Uh, James and John is the passage that Ruth read for us earlier on, having this sort of uh, bit of a power play. They want to be the greatest. They want to take these positions beside Jesus and his kingdom, the left and the right. They want to be in this power position. And then Jesus goes on to tell them here what it's about. In Luke, Mark 10, 42, 44, it says this. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. So, lord it over them. You come and do this. Do this for me. Do that for me. Do this for me. Just up to the Lord. Just order them here and there. But Jesus says this in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. You don't lord it over them. But whoever would be great among you, looking for greatness, that position, must be your servant. And whoever would be first, probably a great position as well, whoever wants to be first among you, must be slave of all. Serving others, serving God. That's too hard. Jesus, that is way too hard. I don't want to do that. I don't want to serve others. I want them to serve me. That's what sort of comes in our heart and our mind sometimes, isn't it? I don't want to be last. 
I want to be first. I want them to come and serve me. I want to be first. I just want to be pampered and waited upon. I want people to serve me to make me feel good about myself. That's what comes out of our heart and our mind. Jesus, that is way too hard. I can't do that. I want them to serve me. Jesus' demands are too hard in the natural. They are beyond us. In the, we can't do that in the natural. Something has to happen. We need to be renewed from within. We need to receive a new heart to be restored so we actually can then serve others and experience that joy that Christ gives us as we do that. And Jesus actually goes to that in the very next verse of this passage. Look in verse 45. He says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, which he deserved all the serving, because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he serve us? It says right there for us. To give his life as a ransom for many. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's got all the glory of the universe speaking out and proclaiming his greatness. What's he do? He becomes a human being just like us. Constrains himself into the body of a human being. Lowers himself, humbles himself and comes to serve us. How does he do that? He takes all of our failure upon himself. He takes all of our brokenness and our proudness and our pride and our greatness and perceived abilities we have, even though we've done that apart from it. He takes all of that upon himself. And he comes to serve humanity by becoming a ransom for us, dying in our place, setting us free from the debt of sin that we have accumulated through all of this pride and brokenness in our lives. Jesus humbles himself and serves us by dying in our place. And what does he ask us to do today? He asks us to be like a child. And what does a child do? A child trusts and a child obeys. Jesus simply asks us to trust in him for our salvation to trust in his finished work at the cross that has paid the full price of our sin. Trust, just like a child. And Jesus says, obey. Obey what, Jesus? Obey your truth so that we can live a new way of life that brings glory to him. And here's what we find as we do that, as we trust in Christ's death and as we obey his truth, here's what we find and experience with a new heart that's now given to us from God, like a new internal control centre. We aren't striving for ourselves to become great anymore. We may wrestle a bit with that from time to time, but it's not the, it's not the driving dominant force within me now that I'm trying to make myself great. It's not that. We're now actually striving, but we're striving to see Jesus become great in our lives and not me. We couldn't care less about my name. I care about Jesus' name in my life. And we do this by serving others by loving others, ahead of ourselves. That doesn't happen in the natural. only happens as the gospel takes hold of our heart. And here's the result as we do that, as we turn everything upside down. And actually, the Holy Spirit turns everything upside down. Here's the result. It's joy. It's joy. It's joy when you think, I can't, how do I get joy? It's joy. 
It's joy in serving others. We experience joy and peace as we seek to make Jesus look great in our lives and not ourselves. As we seek to serve others and not ourselves, and we do it for Jesus' greatness, we reap joy. We are blessed by God's Spirit to know deep satisfaction and fulfilment in Christ. And as we seek Jesus' greatness by serving others, God also fills our heart with his love at the same time. It's absolutely liberating. It takes a massive step of faith, trust, and then obedience to his word through the power of the Spirit that lives in our hearts. And we get liberated from ourselves. And we now are set free to serve others and to do this with great, great joy. So here's the question as we think about it today. Whose greatness are you living for? Whose greatness are you living for? Are you striving for your greatness and waiting for people to recognise you? And what's that striving and struggling delivering for you? What's it producing in your life as you struggle and strive for that? Is it giving you sort of deep and lasting peace and joy and content? Is, is it delivering you that? Or will you come to Jesus, receive his grace, his forgiveness, and now live for his greatness and then know his eternal peace and joy uh, and purpose in life? Really important question. Whose greatness, whose greatness are you really living for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you today uh, for your grace. Father, we thank you today that as uh, we look at this passage, uh, just a simple four verses, Lord, but profound truth and profound implications in our lives. God, in our natural, in our rebellious, bound-up state, we are hopeless. We are hopeless. We are blinded by pride. We are blinded by our own brokenness. We are blinded by trying to strive for our greatness. And it's binding us up, Lord. We just think, if I can just get one more step forward in this greatness of myself, then I'll find freedom. All we do is just tighten that rope a little bit more around ourselves and put one more lock on that chain around ourselves. Today, Lord, I pray, please, Let your spirit come now and open up our eyes, to open up our heart and to open up our mind to see what Jesus has done. He set us free from striving for our greatness to now live for the greatness of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then, Lord, to reap from that this beautiful relationship that is marked by peace and joy and righteousness in the Holy Spirit in your kingdom. Please set us free for that today, Lord, I pray. Lord, we ask that we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people to Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us. 